Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Our guest today is Adam Ryan, founder of Workweek. At Colossus, we're big fans of Workweek. We've hosted The Wolf of Franchises for an excellent business breakdown on Orange Theory. And I'm an avid reader of Adam's perpetual newsletter. For this conversation, we hit on some of the themes that Adam frequently writes about. The ongoing shift towards individuals over institutions, how media companies might solve the business model challenge that currently plagues the industry, and where we are in the niche media cycle. Everyone seems to love B2B media, but is that really everyone? Please enjoy my conversation with Adam, and then stay tuned for my debrief with Don. All right, Adam. So what you're building over at Workweek has some similarities to what we're doing at Colossus. And what that means is you're often writing or speaking about topics that I'm thinking about quite a bit, all the dynamics of building a media business in 2023. So I thought we could just jump around on those themes today and consider this one big asking for a friend conversation. So that's gonna how I'm going to approach this one. Well, I appreciate that. And thank you for uh, always the responses to the newsletter, really helping my engagement and trying to have me keep up. So it's a favor back to you. Amen. Very good newsletter, which uh, is often loaded with themes, topics, data points that I'm interested in. But I wanted to start at a more macro level, and it's something that you talk about quite a bit, the theme of individuals over institutions, which I think is a theme that I have basically tailored my career towards in terms of that shift. But you're building an institution. So why did you ultimately choose that route versus just taking the path of building something as an individual? The idea that we believed was true is that, and to this day still exists, that ultimately consumer behavior was following individuals more than institutions. And there's a lot of different data points around that. And it's not just on, a lot of people get kind of caught up in this like, oh, you're now following Sarah Fisher, not Axios, like that kind of argument. And I think there's something to that of like, I think people are tired of like not knowing who editors are and who has the voice behind that. But it even goes to like, is it Stephen A. Smith or is it ESPN anymore? And then, you know, Serena Williams, I just saw this as like, in the last 10 tweets she's had, she's had like three times the amount of likes that Nike's had. It's just when you think about one person having more control of a narrative than the brand is something that we totally buy in and we don't think that's going away. From a B2B perspective, there's no Kylie Jenner of franchising. 
There's no big names across HR that people are like, oh my God. And so that was the white space that we saw. And, and we think in business, that's happened even more and more. The term we call that and the one we wanted to solve is this knowledge expert paradox. And the idea is the more successful someone is in business, the least likely they are to share. And so that was what we wanted to solve. And we think that matched the consumer behavior. The reason why we built it around a brand is it makes scaling easier. The idea that the pressure that it puts on someone when their name is there, they have no choice around it. And I think like David Rubenstein is a huge inspiration of the business and he has the David Rubenstein show. He doesn't need to go into like other initiatives because he has the Carlisle Group and a few billion behind his name. But if David Rubenstein was like, I want to build the next media company, I think he would consider a brand name because it allows you actually to market more and expand your addressable market. And the best example of this now is Prime with Logan. The reason why that brand is crushing it is because he has his followers buy that consistently, but also the brand itself can stand alone. So my mom doesn't know who Logan Paul even is, but she can walk in the grocery store and be like, oh, this is like a new Gatorade. Let's buy that for the kids. And like that is expanding your addressable market. So I think it's using a brand strategy or an institution strategy with an individual leading it is the perfect formula compared to going one way or the other. And when you think about the promotion of the overall Workweek brand versus the promotion of the individual brands, I think those individual brands stand on their own and stand for themselves. How do you go about promoting the Workweek brand, the umbrella that sits above it all? Early days, we came up with like the yellow background PFP for social. And there's like a few things that we do on the site with images to like signify that it's something attached to the brand. And the inspiration there, like long term, is very much any great house of brands, Disney, you kind of name it, where they have these like little through lines that you're like, "Eh, I know what that is. But like, it doesn't have to be blatantly obvious. Ultimately, we're successful if everyone knows the brands and the people that we're working with. And so we don't worry about it too much. The reason why we I think originally put a lot of effort in getting the yellow backgrounds in that as it allowed us to track talent. We had 3,000 applicants in Q1 inbound. And when you're a growing startup, that's gold. And having a good brand allows you to do that. And this like kind of like work for the mafia mentality thing that others have picked up on. And so that was really the strategy behind it. Long term, we've now developed four different businesses and a few others. And like, if you can, you barely can find work week on those or know that it exists. And that's kind of purposeful where you don't watch ESPN and Hulu and be like, ah, a Disney brand, but they do have the values and they do have the operating principles and efficiencies that the larger co gives it. And I think in the early days, it's very easy to create short term alignment between the overall brand and then the individual creators. But over time, it gets a little bit more difficult to the extent that creators become bigger or to the extent that creators don't pan out. And you've seen some institutions go out of their way to put more focus on the brand than on the individuals. And I think like the most extreme example is SportsCenter, where in those early days, Dan Patrick and Keith Oberman SportsCenter, the executives hated it because they had a very individual identity and they essentially wanted hosts to be replacements. You could slot in anybody. So there was this tug of war and they didn't want these large celebrities almost dominating their brands because they knew that would just give them more leverage over time. How do you deal with that reality of long-term alignment and the challenges that just exist to the extent that creators 
build their own brands, build their own names and become more attracted to everyone else around? I think that's a big question. We could talk about that one for a long time. <laughs> There's a few things there. One is understanding the relationship with the creator. The frustrating aspect, I think, with the TV talent is that the vast majority of the work, the talent is the person. They're writing their own script most of the time. They're performing. It's them. Production, though helpful, not doing anything against our production people, but it's more replaceable of a skill set. Ultimately, the compensation and value of that talent is normally not even remotely equitable to the value that they create. That was what we really wanted to start off with is, one, can we objectively look at every person we work with and say, you have gotten more of a fair share of compensation for how your talent is performing and how the brand is doing than anywhere else. That doesn't mean like, oh, we're going to stick you in like a contract for four years and then we can renew later like Barstool does. And then you might get 500 grand a year. It's, hey, if we're having success, you're having success. And I think incentive alignment is a huge aspect of like the issues that actually exist in current media and what we wanted to solve. The next one though is like most of the creator platforms, agencies, services, their business is much more successful when they go after people who already have huge audiences and they almost just optimize the end. And that's to us was where that's a race to zero because that person's like, I already did all this work. I'm the talent. You're just here to like capture the end. We wanted to help identify people that we thought were a knowledge expert, but may not have ever proven to be a creator yet. And that partnership early does allow for more buy-in on both sides. There's like clear investments on both sides of like, wow, I get this. This is good. And over time, it's a big difference of saying, hey, ESPN execs were upset because SportsCenter was already a 15-year institution by the time those personalities came on board. And they're like, it's not you, it's us. And they were saying the other way. And doing it together and starting from scratch is just a much easier way to have that alignment and then the financial model. The other aspect is around like long-term growth and alignment of like how you keep going. And something that we've learned is that finding people that are more seasoned in their career that have been around a little bit is much easier to do this with. Normally in a professional growth setting, people in their first 15 years are just changing, adapting, growing, being super ambitious, willing to do whatever it takes. After that, your life starts to take over. Hey, I have children, I have this, I wanna do these things. The early days of work week, we were bringing on people that were still in that early part of life. And what happens, and we had someone do this, is he was covering cannabis. He was amazing. I loved his cannabis coverage. And he worked in a retail platform before he knew the business in and out. And then he was like, hey, I want to get into crypto. It's nothing against work week. I just like want to go do this other thing. And I was like, wow, that sucks. I can't do anything about that. So finding people that, hey, you're a chief people officer in HR. This is your career. Hey, you're a marketer here. You're a COO. Like, this is what you do. It brings a lot more stability of the long-term vision of the audience. And then I'm always happy. We can always adapt and we should to their personalities. Hey, you used to like have like pink and blue, and now you want like green and white. Okay, let's do that. Those are things that like we're really flexible with, but we have to do the first part really we improve that a lot because people's overall professional ambitions can't really change or it's not going to work with us. That makes a lot of sense. And I think there's always momentum in those early days, but it's that slog, you know, the year two, year three, 
where it takes something to get over that hump, I think. And I think there's a certain willingness with people who've you know been around and know this is exactly what they want to do, where they might be willing to uh, go through those cloudy days or just certain plateaus and experiences. You mentioned talent identification and trying to find up-and-comers or subject experts that haven't established themselves as creators. How do you go about that? And I think it's very interesting. You come from the hustle, which as time goes on, the roster of alumni (laughs) continues to impress me. Did you learn anything from there? And more generally, what have you learned about talent identification? The hustle's taught me that instincts and mindset both matter a lot, natural ability and work ethic. The kind of path we use now, and this is, this is us getting better at this, is the first thing that we now look for is what industry do we want to be in? You can have an amazing person and someone who is top talent, industry expert, has the mindset, grind it out. But if we're in an industry that just doesn't monetize easily or is like totally outside of a playbook that we're ready to invest in, it's just not going to work well. And we've learned that lesson. For now, we're really being specific of like, oh, we're looking for a technical recruiter because like we like the HR space. We're having success there. Let's go find like the best technical recruiter in the country and build a brand around that. That's now the first step where when we went to market, Beck and I thought it'd take about four months to find four people. And it took like five weeks to find four people. And the advantage of that speed was we got out of the gates quick. The thing we learned in that was like, hey, let's like actually understand what space we're getting into. How do those personas actually buy? What do they buy? Do they buy certification programs? Do they attend conferences? What SaaS products do they use? And now we spend all the time and energy doing that ahead of time. And the reason for that is because out of the 14 or so people that we work with, five had never created content before at all. Not a newsletter, not a podcast. And most of them weren't even barely active on social. What we've learned is that if you really kind of take away the echo chamber of Twitter or the like vanity metrics of LinkedIn and just go talk to really smart people, you're like, you can walk away from conversation like that fucking person was like amazing. And we just talked about this ahead of time. But like when I chatted with Patrick a few weeks ago, I like hung up. I was like, that man knows his shit. That's just a skill that you develop over time. Those are the people that people really want to hear from. And now you have to find a way to incentivize them, to make them feel secure that they can do that, that their life can support this, that they can accelerate and not decelerate making that jump. And like, that's what Workweek was meant to solve for. But now you have this new setup where we're going into industries that we really, in categories that we think are massive and can be tens and tens of millions of dollars. And then we find a person that everyone's like, wait, I don't know who you are. And you're like, oh, they did this, 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 and this. And then their insights are like that. And you're like, oh, wow, I would love to learn from them. And that opens up now an addressable market that doesn't exist for most of these platforms. And Substack's been really helpful, I think, in lowering the barrier and others, these providers. The Wolf, who we've chatted about before, like I was his A subscriber. He had sent one newsletter before we signed him. Substack allowed me to discover that. And But what I'm really looking for is this like real expertise where when I hung up at the wolf, I was like, this guy just understands this crazy old industry with a new way. Wow. And then the third one, though, that is really the thing that I think is harder to judge and takes time and practice to get better at. And the hustle actually helped us a lot with this is mindset. You do have to grind. 
you literally have to have the ambition of like, I want to be the biggest voice in the room. And that comes with ego. And that comes with all these other things that like, I'm like, bring it. Because if you want that, we will get there. And the combination of three really is like the three boxes that we check for the talent. The data point on some of your creators having zero content creation experience is actually shocking to me and a big surprise. And it's almost like idealistic to me rather than realistic. But perhaps I'm clearly missing something. In terms of building the right infrastructure around those people in order for them to succeed, and really around the audience growth, I think we would both agree the content has to be insanely strong. That's like table stakes. But how much are you relying on them when you say the grind to get involved in Twitter, social media, other areas where I think that's very hard, at least from my side of things, to judge whether somebody will be willing to go to those lengths and what's required to build an audience? How do you go about assessing that? Or is it something about building the infrastructure around them? The grind piece is like the wolf and I tell this hilarious story, but like we announced him in February of 22, but he started in um, September before, and we didn't announce or tell anybody. But in November, we were like, hey, you should really start learning Twitter. Why don't you try to do a thread a day? We did a call and he was like, is my fucking job just to like create content on the internet? Like, that's what I do. And like, that's a real moment for work week folks because they're operators. Like, these are not people that most of the time even ever viewed themselves as someone who could do this full time. That is the grind, is mentally getting over the hurdle of like, wow, my job is to like write online now versus like, I'm not selling, I'm not doing these things. And so that's like what I mean there. I think at first we were pretty particular on Twitter and we were looking for people and pushing people to be really active there. I still think Twitter is an amazing platform for most of our categories, but we last year started leaning into LinkedIn for HR and marketing. Sales is ghost on Twitter. Like no one's basically there. LinkedIn, it's everywhere. It's a little noisy, but it's everywhere. Something that we have internally is something that I call path to perception. The idea of really Workweek's business model is fairly easy is can we grow your perception and then capture the value across the way? Ultimately, that's what we do. But the question is actually, how do you build that perception? And every industry, this is the challenge of the business, but something that we think we just care more deeply about and willing to do is you have to individualize it based on the persona of that audience. And a good example of this is like the wolf having a podcast for franchise owners, and he's pushed one out a week for six months, makes people literally in the industry be like, that guy's the man. He's got like the podcast for franchising. If you do one a week in marketing, like no one even notices or cares, right? The perception difference of that product in those industries is very different. If you start to like think about that across social and LinkedIn and Twitter and TikTok, all these personas actually have different ways to build a perception and ultimately more efficient ways. And so what we started to do is not necessarily say, hey, you have to do this, this and this. What we started to do is like say, let's be honest about what you're great at. Alex Johnson, I think, writes the best deep dives of like anyone out there in the newsletter world. They're just the best deep dives I've ever read. And he also is like kind of snarky on Twitter and like he's a dad and has a newborn. He's on paternity leave right now. Like I'm not going to like expect him to like be writing tons of threads. We have ghostwriting support for him on Twitter because like fintech is there. We need that him there. So we're backfilling that. I'd rather have him spend. We talked about being a 10x creator. His deep dives is like why 
someone at the Fed would read his newsletter, right? So let's have him focus there because that's how you build a perception. And then the other aspects that you're not 10x at, let's replace that with someone. And now he goes viral and people are like, oh, you're, and it's like, you know, it's his ideas, it's his helping, but it's the support of a team. You mentioned something in there where the goal is to create some perception and then capture the appropriate value associated with that perception. And I think it's part of a broader theme that you've talked about, which is the media industry as a whole has an incredible amount of influence, but that does not equate to the market valuation that these companies receive. Going back to the highest of levels here, what do you identify as the key issues there? That gap that exists, which I would agree with, between influence and equitability in the market? I mean, ultimately, this is just a business model problem is like really what it comes down to. And the newspaper business sold for great multiples. It was the best business on the planet. It was a subscription business. Churn was incredibly low and it had ads. It was like a bigger TAM of Netflix from the start. And the narrative control it had was incredible. Like it was the peak of media. TV, I think, started to come in and have that success. The fall off of value and influence happened with digitally native companies. And it's impossible to not think the internet's changed business models in every other category. It's silly just because media companies have been lazy and just put ads next to their content like they did in magazines, like they do here, that like they think it's the same model, but it's just fundamentally not. And like the biggest change there was optionality because democratization of content, which is what the internet did, and then the churn of that. And ultimately, if you look at the business model that exists, advertising has always and historically been very bumpy, but there's not been monopolies like Facebook, Amazon, Google, and Snap that like just take up 80, 90% of the market. So now it's still choppy. It always has been, but the rest of us have to eat this 10%. And so it's really hard. And so when you look at like all the headwinds coming to digitally native media businesses of like, there's not enough ad dollars and it's still choppy and bumpy and your actual audience churns out at a higher rate than ever before because they have a lot more options. It just makes a really bad business. And I think people kind of get like a little jumpy in the media world when I write about that and talk about that as like someone who has spent the last decade in it. I think that's like why we want to start work week is like I was talking to people at TCG and Lightshed on the investment side. I passed on every digital media company that ever pitched me. I was like, can you name one comp that hit 10 billion? Just one. No. Can you name one comp that hit a billion? Three companies, basically. Like, it's like, come on. There's just no exit velocity. And I do believe that like innovation is driven by venture capital in the United States in the last 50 years. And like investors aren't stupid. They're like, hey, this isn't going to get any outcomes. I just can't support this. And like in the last 30 years, we've seen the collapse of the value of the industry kind of all on top of that. That's why valuations now are 0.5x for these businesses. You started Workweek despite all of that. Despite being an investor that passed on every one of these opportunities, you decided to create one of these opportunities. What do you think you could be doing differently? Or what do you think the opportunity is in the market to change those dynamics, which I wouldn't argue against any of those things in terms of why the situation is the situation? I think like it took like a first principles approach of like the conversation Beck and I had, my co-founder, she had a great idea of coming up with like a sales media company and this. And I was like, oh, we could like do these things. And it was a good idea. And we were talking through it. And I was like, 
this is just going to be like another bootstrapped, okay outcome business. And I just like, I don't want to do that anymore. And when we started thinking about what problems actually in, a, if you broke down the detailed Excel doc and highlighted, here's the actual issues of scaling. Here's this. What we wanted to lean into was like, let's disrupt the aspects that are good. And the way we did that was say, hey, so if you include all production costs, I wrote a newsletter about this because I think every media operator lies about their cogs because no one knows how to classify it. But if you include everything that goes into it, production costs, everything, I think most media businesses are somewhere between like 35 and 45 gross margin. And it doesn't really probably go much higher. And then I think net margins probably shake out between like 20 and 25%. And like that net margin number is really healthy and you can do it really quickly. And like that's the advantage, the barrier is much lower. When we saw that, what we decided to do was say like, let's literally give a huge portion of that net margin to these talent that make, you know, if you're a doctor and you make 300 grand a year with your own practice, like why the hell would you write a newsletter and do a podcast? You do have to make it financially worth it. And so that margin that most media companies love and that cash flow that has existed, that those companies created, we've given that essentially to the talent in a predictable and incentivized way that aligns the business. And ultimately, we think that will allow us to attract and retain the best talent for a long time. And then the question was, where do we make up that margin? That was like really the start of Workweek. And I think one of the boldest business bets in the 20th century was a production company saying, fuck it, let's launch an amusement park. And like everyone literally thought it was crazy and including his own brother. And I think that's the reason why Disney's most valuable media company in the world is because they took that bet of like, this isn't just what we should do. We could do more. And that was kind of the mindset that we had. So I assume it's not going to be a work week amusement park, but there's some commerce or products associated with the business. What are some of those ideas, either ones that you've already launched or things that might be coming down? We have a internal team called Five to Nine. They're an innovation team that basically works behind the scenes and at nighttime on like products and various aspects there. In May, we announced Hire4, which is a talent search business. Essentially, last year, I was trying to hire an executive and interviewed a staffing agency, basically executive agency. And I was like, how do you do this? And like, we have a huge database of people and we can get you people so fast. And I was like, I guarantee you have a bigger database than you. And that was the start of that. And so we have a team around that building it. It's an amazing way to create value for our audience in a unique way. No one hates getting a promotion and a job while also creating a great service that's pretty differentiated because of the engagement and data that we have on the audience. And so that's the first one. We also announced Crockett, which is a vertical SaaS platform for franchise owners and franchisors. It's a financial planning tool for franchisors and for franchisees. It's a way to scale and grow their business. And we launched that uh, about a month ago. And we will have one more launching in about a month, month and a half, and another one in the fall. And with something like that with the franchisors, that's something that's created with one of your creators and definitely fueled by their content. Is that some type of shared entity where you own a percentage, they own a percentage? I'm basically tying back to the long-term alignment where that would naturally create some long-term alignment if you had a shared entity. With all the businesses, like the theme parks is kind of what we call them, 
all the cap structures are unique to the business itself. So we're not going in saying like, boom, because one of them is a tech enabled service business. That's very different. One of them is like pretty service business. One of them is like a vertical SaaS business and the capital requirements are needed are very different. And so what we absolutely do is make sure there's alignment. And, you know, with franchising, we only have one in that pod. So it's just one, but you know, if we were doing something in marketing, we would include basically all the marketers get their input or doing in sales, all three of them, and make sure that everyone has long-term incentives of success of those businesses and work week is how we structure everything. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think there's something about an entity that is its own business that's a little bit different than the creator, which is the individual and the equity or alignment is much different when you're talking about an entity versus an individual. So I just think it's a very interesting strategy and it makes a lot of sense in some ways in terms of incubating different things. Yeah, I mean, the key there is like, there's companies that I really admire, Knight, we're really close with them. Redesign Health is somebody that we look up to. And then there's been a ton of these consumer brands that have been launched and, you know, Chamberlain Coffee, you go down Prime with Logan, et cetera. And the trap that we didn't want to fall down is where our distribution is, is the fire. And I think right now there's a lot of like, oh, I could like launch this thing because I have 100,000 people on Twitter. And it's like, you're not creating any differentiated service. You're not like solving a problem. You're not using tech to scale this. You're just using your distribution to like have a short-term win. And I think that's totally fine, but it's in many ways, it's short-sighted and probably won't work out well. And so we spend a lot of time making sure what we're bringing to market has some differentiated aspect to it and tech that scales. And then the advantages we have uh, knowledge expert coaching and giving real-time feedback and then an audience that we test all these with before we bring it to market. It makes a lot of sense. I often think about the distribution or the audience that you have is basically just being the marketing expense. And maybe you can eliminate the marketing expense. Maybe you have more effective free marketing because you're doing it that way, but that doesn't solve for all the other items that are important in terms of creating a sale and sustaining a sale when it comes to products. You mentioned Substack previously in terms of what they're doing with the market and lowering barriers to entry. You also haven't been shy about talking about their business model and maybe being not such a believer. What do you think the key issues are there? Because I do think they're somewhat of a proxy for things happening in the creator economy and they become you know, both this ideal, but also this meme. So they kind of sit in the middle of a lot of different things. What's your latest view in terms of what they're doing and the positives and negatives there? I think they deserve a ton of credit for recognizing that there are a lot of brilliant people that would love to create content more easily and then having distribution of built in with in the newsletter format. Blogging obviously been around for a long time, but like it just is easier to just go write a Substack than it is to go write a blog. They just eliminated steps and the ease to create is phenomenal. What I've been critical of is their actual business model. There was no reason for any top creators to stay. We have sale through segment. We have a world-class tech stack that has wild amounts of capabilities. And if you essentially have 3 million in revenue on Substack, you're paying like the same amount for kind of a shitty ASP. And that's just like silly and doesn't work. The way you make that up is through growth. They're trying. I think it's a little bit of a Ponzi scheme of like they're just taking their best creators and then giving those to others, but it's okay. It is helping others stay on there. But I think that they're well-funded. They have a lot of believers there. I think they are going to be viewed historically as kind of like a MySpace, like very cultural relevant, first mover in the space, 
introduced a lot of people to a new thing that they didn't realize was possible. And then other players came in and said like, hey, you should have done it a little bit different and better. And we're going to take that trend. And I think that's like long-term probably how they'll be viewed. What do you think about the overall model, which is very popular now in terms of growth? The ticket to growth is find other people that do something similar to you, whether it's newsletter, podcast, pick your medium and advertise there or share recommendations there. And if I were to just step back, it is there is a pie and I own a certain percentage of it. And now I'm going to give you a little bit of that pie. It's not necessarily growing the pie. And I'm basically giving a leading question here or sharing my own opinion about it. But how do you approach that? Because I think you have to think about that a lot with your own business. That is definitely an in vogue trend right now. But as you mentioned, there are some flaws to it. So where do you think that all settles out? And just in terms of general audience growth, I think there's, you know, the vanity metrics and then there's the reality. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple things that I would say. I think it was a brilliant move by all these providers because like ConvertKit and Beehive basically charge you by subscribers. So like, of course, they want you to grow that account. I'll talk about what I think specifically Beehive is doing well in that compared to others. But like, it's undeniably that they're incentivized for you to grow your list. As are you, in fairness, there's alignment there. They benefit and you benefit in theory from advertisers. Yeah, in the theory. Yeah. In Substack, they had to show that they can help people grow or like the 10% was just way too high probably 200% too high. I mean, it probably should be like three, 4%. You can maybe get away with five, but like, it's just like too high. And so they had to show that like, hey, we help you grow. And actually when you're like trying to like have lower barrier of new people entering the space, getting to a thousand subscribers is great. The foolery of it is that it's not proving content market fit for new people. I think it's a crazy overlooked aspect of people creating content as like, don't fool yourself. This isn't good. You need work. It's kind of misleading. I think a lot of people down a path where they're going to then like try to like launch a course or do something and they're going to get zero sales and they're going to be like, well, I've been growing. I have 10,000 people on my list. I'm like, bro, that was an auto check box. No one knows who you are. I also think it's overall like pretty detrimental to the ecosystem. I'm not like a big fan of it because the irony of the uh, analogy that I've used is like, it's kind of like someone realizing that they could send junk mail in the physical mail for the first time. And then everyone being like, oh, I can do this like all the time. And now you're like, wow, I don't even open any of these because it's all junk. That's the like risk that it runs. And it's like funny that people don't see the similarities of that. I do think Beehive, Tyler was an advisor to Workweek back in summer of 21 before we launched and, and helped us think around our tech stack and that we're close. So a little bit biased, but I've shared with him my thoughts on this like from day one and they've never done auto opt-in. They make you like choose and then on and like anything of the paid side, they have it paid based on engagement, which I think is like better. And essentially, that's just like saying, hey, we're going to like still do this because it's a money making opportunity. It does allow you to grow, but like we're going to make the user make a choice. We're not going to fool them into it. And they ran a basically a comparison on people using Sparkloop, which is essentially like ConvertKit just bought them, but it auto ops people in. And the unsubscribe rate was 9.3% and the spam rate was 6x the normal. Those people are just screwed with deliverability. And what they don't realize is they're on shared IP. So then everyone's deliverability screwed. I think a lot of those companies are going to look back and be like, that was like a good idea to win a headline, to get a couple people to say we're doing this. And then they're going to be like, yeah, we got to stop this. This is net negative for the ecosystem. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. And the 
true nuance in terms of audience growth. And not every person in your audience is created equal. They can look a lot different. And it taps into the really in vogue topic, which has been beaten over by a drum at this point. Niche media, B2B media. I think we're both huge fans of Sean Griffey. You and your podcast introduced me to him. And he was doing this a long time ago. Now it has just become much more of the accepted reality and somewhat obvious. Where do you think we are in terms of the innings there? You're obviously, as you mentioned, being very thoughtful about which markets you go into, how those markets monetize. I think we try to approach things the same way and be very thoughtful about that. But it has become somewhat conventional wisdom. Do you feel like that's a saturated market or still one with some opportunity there? I think from a media perspective, people are starting to pay attention. It's one of those things that like you and I and others are like, oh my God, everyone's running to niche now. And like, if you go ask like all of America, they're like, why would you ever write about waste management? We're still way, way early, not even remotely close to like, if we think about the other content trends of live streaming, gaming, and video podcasts that like with an interview style, we're early, early on the niche stuff. And then the other one is like the purchasing power of these industries compared to the voices that they have. And this is like what I think is why we potentially have a generational business is like the franchise industry, just using that $800 billion total. There's one newsletter with more than 5,000 subscribers total. It's insane the amount of category overlook that that is there. And it takes two things to be successful there. And this is why I think the barrier is a lot higher. I don't think people in these spaces want to hear from journalists, typically. Even the best ones only have insights into 20, 30%. Ben Smith has become so much better now that he's running his own media company versus covering them. That's just the truth of it. And that perspective, you just can't replace. And I think he would admit that. So the barrier will always be higher because the great content, the table stakes is harder to capture because how do you convince people to do this that actually have those insights? And then the other aspect that we get excited about is that even if this becomes saturated, the barrier to create products is just not the same. Shopify made it so easy to drop ship and do all sorts of easy things for consumer. No code is definitely helpful with B2B. And there's like trends there that are undeniable that we take advantage of and do that. But will there be like a out of the box vertical SaaS business? No, it just doesn't work that way. And so as much as it is still early innings, I think there's like continues to be pretty high barrier for those things that even with the development of AI and tech and no code, like it's still just B2B is a different animal than B2C. 100%. Where do you stand in terms of it being winner take all where industry dive was you know a clear winner of this trend? versus having multiple players in the space and some of those categories having multiple voices? I never believe that in content, it's a winner take all. For years, Austin Reef and I talked like all the time. Jason Showwise, who led Revenue at Morning Brew and I during COVID, like texted every day. There's a rising tide lifts all boats aspect to this because especially when you have anything with ads, that 10% left for the rest of us, like the more that you're in communication and alignment, the better it actually is for everyone. I've joked with Alex Lieberman about this, but like I think I was his best lead gen for Morning Brew in 2016 that like ever existed. I would bring in a deal and I would see them in Morning Brew like two weeks later. 
And ultimately, like outcomes are different by brands. But that has more to do with the business model and the storytelling and the leadership, I think, than actually like winning with your audience. When like industry dive, Sean would very much disagree with my comment around journalists. He thinks journalists are great for these industries. And in many ways, they are. But we serve different purposes. If he's covering all the regulation needs in the news there, I'm covering like the insider perspective of why it matters for your day. And both are needed in some capacity. And so I try not to have that attitude and instead just try to kind of like rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah, I would say the floor on a practitioner is much higher than the floor of a journalist. A bad journalist can be very bad. A bad practitioner, it's not going to be that bad. You might just disagree with what they have to say. But at least, you know, they're speaking about experiences, which I think reveal certain things and you can take away certain things. They don't completely miss the mark. You also see it a lot faster. Bad journalist is slower to understand because like they can do these things. Then all of a sudden you're like, wait, you didn't really check your sort. Like it's harder to catch. And this is why we chose B2B was if you did this graph of essentially opinions and value, most of the time you don't get to pay people for opinions except to business. But like those opinions are crap. You can kind of tell it pretty quickly and you can make moves a lot faster. Yeah, that's true. In terms of the different mediums, you newsletter, podcast, video, you mentioned that some of these categories, the audiences basically align with certain mediums much more. But where do you stand just overall on the importance of having exposure to each, the importance of dominating one, and then just generally how you think about different platforms and different mediums? Newsletter is like a must win for us basically across the board. What drives that? There's two aspects. One, we talk about attention to intention a lot. So having attention is people just saying, I'm, I know who you are, I'm paying attention to you. Intention is I'll take an action based on what you say. I think long form written word is still one of the best ways to drive intention, especially in business, because like it's how we all operate. We all write emails all day. We're not sending video texts to be like, this is the update. I think there's just a natural connection across all business with long form written word. Also, it's really easy to be very clear in written word. No misunderstandings, no anything like that. So that's that. From the business side, it's a data goldmine. We have a data team at Workweek building profiles out and analysis of everything from actually having true cohort analysis and LTV across all of our products to also like what is the likelihood. Well, I'll give you an example. With Crockett, we're struggling of like, hey, what is the real problem here? The wolf told us like, hey, there's no transparency. These franchisees don't really know what's going on. That was a great qualitative insight. We then found through our audience that over 50% of franchise owners only own one location. Like they're the definition of small business owners. You like switch your mindset from like, oh, this is like a wealthy person that owns 10 chains to like, you own like a Sonic in West Texas. You might cash flow 400K a year, but you like don't know a lot probably a lot or have access a lot. That like changed how we thought about the storytelling and the building of Crockett. And the newsletters enable all that to happen. I think podcast is one of the best ways to also build intention. It makes you feel that way, but there's no data. And so that's why we put a pretty heavy emphasis on the newsletter. Data is incredibly frustrating. I do give credit to some of the platforms that seem to be leaning into creating more of audience engagement tools and ways to interact with your audience. But the difference between that and email is just so substantial. 
Yeah, I wrote a newsletter last year that Spotify should buy Substack. And I still think it's true. If Spotify could start to say, this person you acquired for this much, and now this is how much you're making, like we can do in newsletters, the entire ecosystem would grow by magnitudes because then marketers could start to spend money to grow audio. And right now, as someone who loves spending money on growing media and marketing, and we've done it for years, I don't spend a dollar on podcasting because that just feels like a black hole. Understandably so. I mean, we have obvious different reasons and the way we sell is a lot different. But in terms of the companies, I think you've mentioned a lot, many different companies across the board. And there's a long list of others that I had that I was going to bring up. Puck, The Athletic, you know, different models, different strategies, different things. Who stands out where you're looking at them over the next three years and think like, this is one of the most interesting companies that I'm watching because I think they're doing something creative? We're in a wave where I think there's more lifestyle businesses that did new trends that then took venture, and they're not venture businesses. Are they good businesses? Will they cash flow well? Will they make people wealthy? Yes. And are they interesting? You know, and I think like the information was a perfect example of that from the beginning, like super interesting, the focus that they had. Is that going to be like a massive, massive outcome? No. I think like you could classify in some ways Puck and Punchbowl in those. I love Punchbowl, what they're doing. Their attention to like who, not how many is like brilliant. I think they're great operators. It's just like, is the business ever going to do more than 25, 30 million bucks? Like, I don't know. One of my favorite companies right now is State Affairs. It's probably off the radar of most people. They are doing a roll-up strategy of state political newsletters and essentially building another version of Politico, but only for state politics. And they have an enterprise and consumer version. And the success and growth they're experiencing is phenomenal. But when I think about like actual $500 million billion potential ideas and the impact of narrative control that they have, it's pretty phenomenal. And it's a fun one to watch. I can only imagine the drama that will surround some of those and the different dynamics. They're completely not basically bipartisan everyone's like, they just cover the news of what's happening in your state with the goal of creating more transparency of what's happening in state politics. Do they take ad dollars? Like, is it marketing funded? It's mostly subscription, similar to Politico. I mean, they have some ad dollars, but the value capture clearly is like coming from the enterprise side. And it's a good one to watch. Smart operators, the former head of marketing at the Hustles, their COO and doing pretty well. And with something like the information, I completely understand with the business as it is today, the outcome who knows what it's going to be, but you don't put this outrageous sky high number in your head. But to the extent that they maintain that audience, they maintain a cash flowing business. Isn't there always that optionality there that they figure out the complementary business to build around it that could result in that? And where I go with this is like, there's something interesting about these audiences where to the extent that you limit churn, the optionality always exists that you can build something to truly capture the value on the back of it. For sure. I think, though, we wrote this in our first memo is like, why won't others do this or whatever? The very bold answer was because we thought about it. First, Jessica Lesson one day was like, hey, you can create this massive business by like creating the next pitch book and like creating an enterprise software project. Be like, no, that's not what we do. And I think it's not only interest, but it's also like building the foundation, the cultural and ethical kind of like attitude of the business of, hey, we want to do that. And like Knight is a great example of that. Like, it's easier to do these things to create secondary businesses when you're like, this is what we've done from the start. 
And I think you know, lesson learned from the hustle is like, I think that business had so much potential of the influence that we had, the opportunities we had, the market we had. The reality is like, it just wasn't built to launch, even if we cash flowed well, wasn't built to launch a lot of tools. And we could have, we had the influence to do that, but it wasn't culturally built for that. It didn't have the financial backing to do that. Uh, and I think like most of these later, that's where you kind of get into like the BuzzFeed routes of like, oh, we're a good business. Let's go go do this thing and then go do that thing. And then like, you're just trying to like check a box to grow versus like actually doing something strategically. And of course, that's kind of, I would say like a glass half empty attitude and a little bit hard on those folks. But I do think it's incredibly difficult if you haven't planned from the beginning to build secondary businesses to then later do that. Yeah, I mean, take humans, right? It's a lot easier to learn a second language as a child. You develop the muscle structures in your mouth to pronounce and properly pronounce some of these words. And I think there's something there with building that muscle memory within a corporation and a business. Adam, this has been fantastic. Truly enjoy everything that you put out, both yourself and from the team. Hope to do this again in the future. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on and look forward to next time. All right, Dom. Thoughts. What can we be taking from Adam and Workweek and applying to Colossus? Big dreams. That's kind of how I would encapsulate the conversation. He's got a thesis, very bullish about it, which I admire. Not shy to make comparisons to Disney, the SPN, etc. Big media powerhouses. We've talked a lot about how media is a slow burn and it's hard to raise VC money and turn that into a booming media business. Adam is obviously wide aware of that fact and is not necessarily building a media business, but using a media business to build more profitable, sustainable cash flow generating businesses on the side. And he's raised money, but he knows why he's raised money. It's not like I'm here to grow my subscriber base. Although that is part of it. It's like, I want to build a SaaS business or a recruitment business, because ultimately that will be a better way for this business to grow and scale and generate profitable dollars. It was a really, really interesting discussion. It changed a little bit of the framing of the conversations that we've had in the last month or two about media businesses. So it's always interesting to have those conventions challenged. How did you find it being in the conversation itself? Really enjoyable, mostly because I found Adam probably a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. And he was talking to Sean Griffey, another one of our guests, somebody that I think speaks about media in a way that really aligns with how I think about things. So just getting to like drill down on a few of the things that I think about a lot on a day-to-day basis was quite nice. And I think he's not afraid to share his views, which I truly, truly appreciate. It's not just high-level, basic this is a simple path to growth. It's like, no, truly, this is what matters in terms of building enterprise value, or this is why the recent string of media businesses have peaked or capped off at sub-astronomical levels. So I like that he thinks through those things, and we're aligned on a lot. And then he sees things differently on a decent amount of things too. And that to me is fun. A true debate or true open-ended exploration of the different media things is what I really like. I was stunned, like you said it, but I was also stunned when I heard it that they have five or so creators that had never been a creator before, literally pulled them out of industry and said, we think you could become a great creator. Although we've never seen you write anything before, we will turn you into a newsletter star. And that really stunned me. It's very difficult to do. Obviously, you know, like they're not short of applications by the sound of it, but then putting the time and energy into turning someone who has never written before in a clear way and an engaging way about the industry that they've operated in. Obviously, I'm sure they've written tons of emails before, but it's a different game, I think. 
And then there's a point about like, we found that you don't want young, hungry people. You probably want people who have been in the industry for a while because you can have more certainty that they'll stick with this particular thing for longer, which is important in terms of the business model that Adam is putting in place there. Both of those things I didn't expect. It's kind of the holy grail. If you can pull someone who's never done this before and turn them into a star, like that's great because you're obviously giving a lot to them, changing their life in a number of different ways. And there's probably a lower price on someone who's never done something before than maybe someone who like, you're pulling in who's proven their worth in this particular domain. Yeah, the practitioners, I think it's such an interesting theme. And I've thought a lot about it in terms of going from investing into operator role, and if that would actually benefit going back into the investment space. I actually don't think it would. But I think going from an operator into somebody that covers that sector or that space, I think it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, it's not just anybody who's been a practitioner would make for a good content creator. But those that have that right set of skills make for the best. I think I would generally agree with him versus like a traditional journalist. Someone we talked about in the early episodes, Jimmy Chin, good example of somebody who you know lived that life and now creates a lot of media around outdoors activities. And I think they can see things in a certain way. They have relationships that have a much different purpose behind them. A journalist's relationships might be one-sided versus somebody who's a practitioner. So I think that makes a ton of sense too. It got me thinking that a specific point about B2B content and people on that side of things, they want to hear from an operator, not a journalist. And I was thinking, how long does that last for? Like if you're writing an HR newsletter and you were a chief HR operating officer at a business for a number of years, how long is it before you start to lose kind of the on the ground sense of what's happening or what's changing in the industry? I know you're covering it, but like there is a difference between being in a business and seeing these things at the coalface versus one or two steps removed. And obviously when you start writing about industries, you start having to worry about impartiality, all that kind of stuff. It does change over time. So I wonder whether there is a point in where that link starts to break. On the flip side, you're probably getting better at what you're doing in terms of writing about the industries. I don't really have an answer to it because I think Ben Thompson is a very good counterexample. So like, actually it's fine. Yeah, not to lean on sports cliches, but I think you see it a lot with sports media where there's that transition. A lot of turnover happens in terms of who they were with in the locker room. They actually say it's more challenging in the early stages because a lot of the people that you might talk about in terms of media or content are still in the space. And if you were friends with them, you're going to have a tougher time being honest and open and transparent. I think here it's a little bit different. You're not talking about people and humans as much. You're covering a sector and trying to give insights. It also made me think of CAA, Michael Obitz. He was bringing in agents from every which corner of the entertainment space. And I think that was another example in terms of what he's doing here, which is pretty creative. Yeah, they're two very good comps. I thought your question at the end about optionality was precisely the right question to ask pushing back on saying like the information I think was the example being used. Or if you've built a loyal following, then at some point you can turn the water sprocket on and like build another business around your audience. And Adam obviously has a very specific viewpoint on that. I think I would probably err on your side, although I totally understand his point of you kind of have to have the mentality of like, okay, we're doing something different here. The media mindset versus building another business mindset, I think are two slightly different things. But I think he uses Disney the whole way through the conversation. Disney did it. They were content creators for 10, 20 years before they started building theme parks, cruise liners, like all the other stuff around it. And I think like ultimately you could get someone else into the business to like start building that stuff around the audience space would be my take. But 
I don't know, most of this stuff, there's so much nuance in it. It probably depends on who the person is or who you bring in or like what you're trying to do. It's so case by case dependent. Yeah. And I think it's kind of like investing. If you were to frame it as he's building muscle and making sure that he learned the mistakes in terms of building out these platforms early on so that if he keeps doing it and iterating and iterating in terms of different platforms, he'll be able to correct on some of those mistakes and have more successful outcomes. But you're almost taking like a basket-like approach versus someone who might be waiting out for that major opportunity that they really want to go after and throw all of their resources at and thinking about it more like a punch card mentality. I think those are like the two ends of the spectrum where you don't want to get caught is in the middle as if you're like trying things, but putting a lot of money and they're not really great ideas, but you're testing them and it's not part of the company's DNA. So I agree with you. It's kind of like an interesting thought process because I think that's where a lot of the media discussion centers around is enterprise value will come from those that figure out ways to use the distribution, the audience, thinking about it as the marketing expense to do something much bigger with more (laughs) attractive business model attached to it. Yeah, sounds about right. Just going back to something you said at the very beginning of the conversation or something he said, you subscribe to a number of different newsletters. Do you email them all back? If they have interesting things that they've said, yeah. I think I actually email a decent amount of them. Believe it or not, you get replies when you email these people too. That's cool, yeah. As with most things in life, everybody assumes that these people are getting a ton of responses. They're not. And if you just go out of your way and have an answer to a question that they posed or have thoughts on one of the discussions that they brought up and want to share your own opinion, that's an easy way to start a relationship. And I feel like I just got another response from somebody who responded to their newsletter. That's how Liberty, you know, who has a popular newsletter, how he and I became close was just responding to his newsletter on a variety of different things and current relationship over time. And Adam's newsletter, one of the things that he said in this episode, which I thought was great, was long-form writing. With writing, it's very easy to make a clear point. There's not a lot of question in terms of what you're trying to say. I actually don't agree with that. I think you have to I be was a good, say. Yeah, I think you have to be a good writer. It's not easy to be really clear with the written word, but he is really clear with the written word. And I think the way he structures his newsletter is great where there's no question in terms of what he's trying to say. So I've appreciated that. And I think it's one of the better ones that I see in our space. Yeah, I'll fight you over that. I think 95% of <laughs> people are not clear with their written word. It's very easy to misconstrue what they mean. The exclamation mark gets thrown around tons of times, makes people sound like they're shouting when they're actually they're not. All that kind of stuff gets blurred in people's writing. But I like that you email people back. Self-professed, the world's worst networker. I'm going to have to put that into my playbook. I like finding things that I can actually do without me feeling awkward. And that feels like a, a good strategy. Yeah, I mean, be specific about what you're writing back to and try to add value to whatever they're writing about. That might be where I come unstuck. (laughs) I think it's just be specific. And yeah, you could say like, this was great, or thank you for writing this. Or you wrote about these five examples. This is another example that I think is really good. And I enjoyed reading this. And you know how much pep you get in your step when people are uh, responding to the podcast well. So take that and think about applying it elsewhere. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, everyone listening. (laughs) Anything else for you that, that jumped out? No, I I enjoyed it. I enjoy his takes. I think the way that they build infrastructure around their creators is really interesting. And just the approach that he's taking. I think his framing, I love the whole idea of individual over institutions. And I think the way he framed it and thinks about it makes a ton of sense. And if I just were to say, those individuals need the infrastructure around them, and not just in terms of putting out content, but infrastructure to build 
platforms and different tech stacks makes a lot of sense. And then if you think about several of them coming together to build some of these things too, I thought that was like an interesting thing as well. The Wolf of Franchises, who we had an excellent business breakdown with, doing something that's like very specific to him. But if you have several marketing people combining in to create something around marketing, I think that's really interesting too. So clearly he's thought about some of these things. And I think the way that they're at least setting up the incentives, which I think can be pretty tricky in this space, makes sense just from like a pure logic standpoint. Yeah. And that business breakdown was excellent. Needham Baxter, McDonald's or one of the big chains. Just for people who might be wondering, the inside baseball on the why did Matt just host this one? We often think about this as like whether having two people on the call detracts from the quality of the conversation. There are times when I want to ask very specific questions about things that Matt gets utterly bored by. And then I can see him just starting to like fade into the background. Matt obviously has been emailing Adam back from his newsletters for many a decade. You guys would have a better conversation without me. And you know what? I think the outcome justifies the decision. Well, I'm not sure about that. I think you always add a certain thing to these conversations. (laughs) I seem to appreciate you. But I appreciate you giving me the chance and the opportunity. So... Thank you very much for that, Tom. I would say anytime, but I'm not sure it's anytime. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. All right. Well, on to the next week. We have a fun little change of pace. We're mixing up the formats here, who we're talking to, really going across the media ecosystem. So hope you enjoyed this one and we will see you next week. Yeah, see you then.